We are rolling. This is the Propaganda Report with Monica Perez and Brad Binkley. Hey, Binkley, how you doing? I'm good. I want to play something for you because we there's just been breaking news of a pretty heated interaction between Trump and Kim Jong-un, and I have some audio for it. Do you want to hear it real quick? Yeah. All right. I just pulled it up. Here it is. Is that Trump singing? Yeah, Kim Jong-un was the, the higher-pitched voice. But that was Trump singing. That was Trump. They were doing He's got a duet. A beautiful voice. It was a duet. It was kind of like Because <laughs> they're both on the same page. They're both threatening fire and fury. Yeah, they're both threatening ridiculous things. I read where Kim Jong-un <laughs> threatened an uh, ocean of fire to South Korea recently or something. They boot, and then they Trump countered with both fire and fury. Fire and fury. I think a Bible verse. Not in I that think. order. Right. What does he say? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, he said, it's going to be fire and fury, the likes of which the world has never seen before. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh at the North Korea thing. It just, it's, it might actually be one of the catalysts for World War Three, and then, it, you know, it won't look funny to laugh at it however just because these people are willing to punctuate their reality shows with actual destruction doesn't mean that it isn't acted out i mean i I have this thing about like world war three might be coming honestly and i i have never really thought that before but just too many signs that are not getting played up in the news are there and i can rattle them off but my point here is that uh, the way I lost my thought. <laughs> yeah. You said that you see the signs so, in the news of World War Three coming. Yes. And, oh, I've been thinking about it this way. Like, all these things that are signs um, – of bringing manufacturing home, messing with trade, making sure that our, you know, getting rid of immigrants so that your workers can do all the work and uh, having the NATO powers ramp up their defense spending, have us ramp up our defense spending, making the Navy the biggest it's ever been before. Uh, I think that's what he said he wanted to do, which is very important for the sea powers versus the land power. That even though you would think that all of this stuff indicates might be preparing for a war that our leaders want us to win. Otherwise, you know, if this is really just a conflagration that is meant to step up the world government thing, like a la League of Nations after World War One, UN after World War Two, if the true world authority is coming and they need a world war to make it happen, it doesn't mean that they don't actually want to have a really big, hot war and kill a bunch of people, even if they both Putin or Putin and China and North Korea, if everybody wants this war because it's great for concentrating power at the top, even if they all want the war, they got to actually have a war. So they everybody needs to fight it. So you need to build up the defense spending that spends the money, that gets the banks going. And one big purpose of war is to kill people. So I'm not saying that we're not headed into some massive war, but I also think that North Korea is a... Uh, I think there's a good chance. The only thing that's ever made sense to me is that it's there because we want it there. It's a belligerent because we want it to be belligerent, that it's important for us to have a belligerent in Asia that's actually dragging us into an Asian fight like that. So, but for me, like the whole entire Kabuki theater, whatever the political theater that we've been witnessing from Trump to King Kim Jong-un and all these people, it's so stylized and over the top it's so ridiculous the way that he is with this you know the korean guy with his crazy haircut and all the militaristic stuff that plays in but they can say the same thing about trump trump presents a very exaggerated image to us and to the world and it seems like 
it's that thing that we were talking about before, like the stereotypes, the touchstones, if they can just make it like triggers, it's almost like they're symbols, they're exaggerated symbols of good and bad, East and West, you know, the way military right. propaganda, like a poster from World War One, really looks with a baby on a bayonet, you know, that's how I feel. So it's laughable on the one hand, but, you know, it's probably going to kill millions of people on the other. Right. What you're saying about the propaganda and the comparisons, too, is interesting because remember how his father, they used to say that he would play golf and get 18 holes in one and he would shoot an 18 on the <laughs> golf course. That was the myth. That sounds right. And I know he used to have like um, they used to say bring like truckloads of Hennessy XO in, which is a super expensive cognac. And, and they would show like the trucks passing, like people dying in the streets of starvation. And I knew they exaggerated stuff like that. Right. Well, Trump, we talked about this, I think, briefly a few weeks ago. But Scaramucci was given one of his only press conferences and he was talking about the president. And he said something like, look, the president, I've seen this guy throw a football through a, a tire hole. I've seen him. I've seen him golf, hit uh, birdies from, you know, putts nobody can hit. I've seen him in Madison Square Garden just shooting free throws from the top of the key, switch, switch, switch. <laughs> the guy's a winner. Yeah, like he's an amazing that. athlete. And you juxtapose that with look at Putin's pecs. Putin's got his oh, shirt yeah. off again. And, you know, <laughs> Obama used to wear a bicycle with a helmet and Putin was riding a shark naked. But now, you know, you get to see that uh, Trump's out of shape and Putin's, you know, Trump's on vacation and Putin's on vacation, but Putin is skinning yeah. polar bears with his bare hands, you know, yeah. without a shirt on. And yeah, Trump's, that was interesting. You know, in Florida. But it's just these... It's just these comparisons. And I actually tweeted out like a, like this silly comparison of Putin and Obama. And now it's between Putin and Trump. And I, I think that Putin stuff might even have been Photoshopped because he's always wearing the same. He always has his shirt off and he's wearing the same green cargo pants, which maybe that's all he ever wears. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's his look. That's his signature look. Maybe the occasional backwards hat. I don't know. But I just, you'd think he wouldn't always have the exact same thing on. Maybe wear a bathing suit when he goes swimming instead of cargo pants. I don't know. Now, I think he kills a shark and wears its skin as a bathing suit first. I did fall. I did not fall for the riding a shark thing naked, but I or topless. But I did years ago. I started posting this stuff. I sent it to you, or I tweeted it. I don't know. I did a show on that. I think in 2013, where I talked about Putin shirtless, and and it was like the same pictures as. Do you remember? I just sent this to you. Yeah, the pictures look pictures. very similar. Very similar, but it, the funny thing is, at the time, I saw him whatever riding a motorcycle without a shirt on, or riding a. A horse without a shirt on had all these pictures of him doing stuff without a shirt on and some of them were real and some of them weren't real obviously him riding a shark without a shirt on was not real but <laughs> but just like it was another time i was fooled by the fake thing he was riding a snowmobile without a shirt on and i was like you know i guess he's russian <laughs> You can do that's stuff what you like do that when you're in russia you know that's what you do when you, when you hang out in siberia but uh well, this guy that you wanted to talk about today, I think that um, he is the antidote to anybody who doesn't want to have a baby because he looks like the most evil person. <laughs> he looks I've like he would eat your baby. Life. Yes, you don't want to. I actually, to be honest with you, I saw a picture of him, and I thought Michael Chertoff. Really like, right? Yeah, Michael Chertoff, where they demonized him. You know, like colored in his cheekbones and made his nose look big. You know, I just thought they were trying mm -hmm. to make him look. And I look and I looked up other pictures. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's what he looks like!" Like yeah. that's that's just what he looks like. I, say, I honestly looked at several pictures. Yeah, and I was like, "Surely, you know, they just enhance." You know, like sometimes they would make Obama look blacker, and sometimes they'd make him look whiter. I you could see on different covers of magazines depending on what they were trying to say. I noticed it, and this I was like, "No, that's just him." Yeah, <laughs> guy looks evil. So he's a guy um, who Michael uh, was the Department of Chertoff, right? Chertoff. Yes. So he was the head of Homeland Security, I believe, at the end of Bush and the beginning of Obama. And he was, in 2001, before 9-11, he was put in as a general in the Justice Department. 
I think he headed the criminal division or something, which I kind of would have thought the Justice Department was like all criminal division. He was a judge. He, I, I looked up an article on him and it said Hillary's arch nemesis, you know, to be, to stay on as Homeland Security chief. He supported you know, Hillary during her in the past election. I know. And then, and then he came around and, uh, and he supported her this time around. But what, what was interesting to me, so I, I just in the back of my mind knew he's probably a Podesta type or whatever, just somebody kind of deep state bureaucrat. <laughs> you know, that's what I kind of thought. But I think it might go a little deeper with this guy. I'm, I'm sure it does totally go deeper. I, I didn't go deep enough to know, but you sent me a, a YouTube video that I felt like he was laying out things that I had not realized about the the beauty of for these guys the the war on terror and let me just back up to say that this all goes back to or I often refer to the report from Iron Mountain which and I I so many times have sat down even today I sat down and tried to like write to summarize it but it's so short it's like 80 or 90 pages and every word is critical so all I tell you is please like you could just look it up read it at, on the on the PDF it's so easy and uh what it talks about is it's the possibility and desirability of war and it talks about what war is for and then if there's any way to substitute for war and uh and it has like categories there's like uh five general categories that war is used for economic purposes political sociological, ecological, and then cultural slash scientific, which funny is that's one thing. But um, they also talk about how to uh, achieve, if they want to replace war, they have to introduce other things and would they even work? So uh, they suggest substitutes for war. Like one thing you can do with war is... uh, undesirable people, unemployable people, the dregs of society, you can just either send them out to war and have them all killed or uh, just put them in the service. Like, it's just a great way to get them out of society. Um, And they say that uh, in order to replace that, you'd have to have some other euphemized form of slavery. And then around this time, we started getting slaves to debt, slaves to drugs, um, that kind of thing. And these are like the drug war uh, and then the war on terror. But like they were trying to introduce substitutes for war. And to me, because of nuclear weapons made it unlikely you were going to have, be able to get away with starting World War III because nobody would take the bait nobody could win and all that kind of stuff. Then now they start talking about like limited strike and whatever, but it took them a long time to try to introduce that. So anyway, these guys. So, so when I saw the war on terror, I thought, and it's just around the time that this, that started popping up was when this said, Hey, we've got ideas. We don't want to write them down. This is where they said like environmentalism would be one thing that could get people to rally around a world government or whatever. And they said, you know, we, we're not going to talk about the ideas we have that we want to use to try to achieve some of these goals. And we want to, when we introduce a PSYOP or an element into society that's supposed to control some of these factors, we want to multitask. So we want to be able to control more than one factor at once. And so when I heard this Chertoff thing, so with the war on terror, I never really thought about it too much as like a multitasking thing. I just thought it's a, it's a, it's an enemy that keeps people loyal to the government. And that's all there is to it. But Chertoff, the things he was saying, made me think there were so many things that terrorism could do that a conventional enemy could not do. So this clip, this passage, so if you can play it, and I'll just stop you when I want to say, this is what I think he's talking about. And then, uh, but it's funny because you sent it to me because it was a bunch of, he was on a talk show that was taking calls from people. So it was a visual thing, like a TV show. 
Yeah. And people were calling in and they, and all these people were calling with nine 11 stuff. Drilling them with questions. And he was laughing. Yeah, and he was just laughing at them and just like they're kooky, and uh, and finally, like one guy calls with some you know name and names and everything, and they just they just don't even address it, and uh, and that's when I was gonna you know that's when most people stop watching, but it was after that that Chertoff just starts saying what's really going on, I think. So that's what I wanted to talk about. All right, one other fact about him before I start the clip is he co-authored the USA Patriot Act. With Biden? I or guess. with, like, okay, so, now, Biden said he wrote it, and then they tried to get it passed during Oklahoma City. So, did he do it as, after 9-11, or did he do it before? Do you know? Let me see. What does it say? I don't know. It just has his name as one of the co-authors on the Patriot Act page. And Gito, were there any other? Oh, well, were there any other names on that? Of who co-authored it with him? He was in the Justice Department. He was, before that, he was head of, like, anti-racial profiling for George Bush. It's It was such a, you know, I wonder what he was being really groomed for. Yes. It does not say who the other authors of it are on here. I'm just, I was just curious to know who, like, at what stage of development he was inserted, but it doesn't matter. Uh, Okay, let's go. Interesting. All right. That is actually super interesting, given what I hear him saying. Exactly, yeah. Going forward here, yeah. Here's the clip. This is from uh, CNBC, I believe. Mm -hmm. Hayesville, Georgia, Clyde. Like eight years ago. Yes. Good morning. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Chertoff. Morning. Uh, excuse me. I have uh, uh, 33 years in the military. Five years working for the Department of Defense, and to this day, I still see the cover up on 9/11. Um, we know that fatal uh, danger, which infiltrated um, the terrorist activities, had photographs of the terrorists, had knew that there was. They had a plan to attack targets, and a report went forward that on either Clinton's desk, it, I believe it was 98-99, or Jamie Gorelick's desk, and it was never acted on. You write in your book about calling, you call this a generational challenge. Mm-hmm. Unquestionably, the threats we face constitute a generational challenge to our nation. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that uh, the 21st century is a different kind of warfare than the 20th century. 20th century, we were used to having uh, massed armies. You know, the enemy came over the hill. You could see uh, the cloud of dust. Uh, people wore uniforms, and there were a set of rules and principles that were very clear. 21st century is different. The enemy is networked. The line between the military and the criminal has really been obliterated. Uh, we have to use a combination of defense and law enforcement. We can't choose one or the other. So we're facing Stop. a new kind of warfare. So, first of all, you notice they just completely cut that guy off. Yeah. Like, they, they didn't even him. act like he was <laughs> right. there. Yeah. Just completely stopped. I mean, that that was just like, okay, this is when you go, like, to DEFCON. Thank <laughs> you for your question. Now we'll change yeah. something. He didn't even say thank you to the question. It was just like, did you hear something? No, I didn't. I didn't hear anything. So, so then he says the line between law enforcement and what the military or something, the line yeah. between criminal. And so for me, I always thought we've talked about this before. When I said the lines, the uh, letters of Mark and reprisal that I, I actually, after we talked about it and I put something up on the show notes of Ron Paul talking about how it's, it's not a country. It's not a nation. It's not an elected government. You can't bomb the country and kill the people for something like Al Qaeda or Osama bin Laden. It's, these are criminal enterprises. They're like mobs and, and there you have to address it like that, both legally and, you know, in your use of enforcement and he was talking about it, and it was something that was was established for pirates because that's what these people are. They're pirates. They're they're um, international criminals without a state. And of course, all of the internet was like, "Raw." He didn't say anything about pirates, but that's what it was originally for. And even in the Constitution, it says like one of our eighteen enumerated powers 
is like fighting pirates or something crazy. Like I think, if I'm not mistaken. Are you saying terrorists and pirates? Thing. Yes, I'm saying I. I don't. I'm not saying they're. I can't say they're pirates because everybody made fun of Ron Paul for saying that. I'm only saying they made fun of him for saying that. But if you actually think about it. The laws that are in place, there's criminals like domestic criminals. There are foreign countries that if they invade you, you can have war with them. And then there are people without a country who, uh, or international criminal organizations like the mafias of different countries, you know, of, uh, not just the Italian mafia. Um, and you're supposed to be able to fight, you know, you have to fight them. You don't, you can't bomb Italy because mobsters are Italian. You can't do that. You could not nuke Rome or Tuscany or Naples because mobsters are Italian. There are ways to deal deal with it. And and what Ron Paul was talking about is like you identify those people and then you can have a manhunt and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's just handled differently. Anyway, my I, I used to just like make that point. Like you're not allowed to have – you can't just regime change everywhere – pirate comes out of because that's just not how it works. You can't destabilize a civilian population and a, 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 a recognized sovereign nation with the government because, I mean, and if you were going to do that for about 9-11, it would have to be Saudi Arabia because the money was Saudi, Osama bin Laden was Saudi, and all the hijackers were Saudi. Um, but but I, I just thought it was a sloppy you know, something nobody noticed, but I, but I see now that that is actually a, a device. It's a point. He's saying, oh, what do you do when it's not a country and it's not a criminal? Then the lines are blurred. The lines don't exist anymore. You, you are now able to treat your own citizens as military enemies. You're allowed to treat the citizens of other countries as, um, you know, military enemies, like all the uh, law enforcement and the military become one, you know, like that's what he just said, that, that, it, yeah, that, it, that was pretty shocking. No longer, yeah. And we have to not have that. Like we have laws against that posse comitatus and stuff. You can't have the military turn against the people. And, and that is what a police state is. That is what we're moving towards is a police state. They're militarizing the police the federal government comes in. Homeland security is all over, like in your local community. You don't even realize. I was thinking something really interesting. I thought was, I, I was thinking how I was walking around in Times Square. I've been visiting my mom while she lives in New York. So I was in Times Square recently, and uh, it was. It's like Disneyland. It's completely whatever commercialized. And I had a purse as a New Yorker. I would never carry a purse around. This insane especially not in Times Square, but it's been completely commercialized. And when I was growing up in Times Square, I mean, it was literally like the Dave Chappelle show with the puppets where like, you know, like Oscar the Grouch, his version of Oscar the Grouch has a syringe sticking out of his head. Like that's what Times Square was like. It was just junkies and prostitutes on every corner. And you would never walk around with anything. I mean, I used to literally wear like a bomber jacket because I – stupidly or maybe correctly thought it would stop a blade you know, i was like i would like because i used to live in a poor neighborhood i had no money so i lived in hell's kitchen and if i would have to just run down to the grocery store i would you know never bring a purse or anything but i just thought you know i don't know um maybe it was like false sense of security but that's how bad it was and uh so when i was down there now it's like oh well you know why didn't they just have massive amounts of cops back then. Like, that's just stupid. And I thought, well, they didn't have massive amounts of cops because that costs a lot of money and they didn't have a lot of money. And I thought, well, why didn't they borrow money? And I thought <laughs> they did borrow money and then they went bankrupt. Like in the seventies earlier than, I mean, I, I lived there much later than in the nineties, but in the seventies they did go bankrupt and a city or a state or a municipality can go bankrupt. There is an upper limit to how much money they can borrow, how much they can spend, how much police they can really put on the ground. But the federal government, see, I always think the federal government is taking over all the power because centralized power is wielded by, you know, the few people at the top. But actually a very probably, I would say now I'm thinking that the number one reason that the federal government uh, takes over all this stuff is that their resources are truly, at least within the confines of the 
existing paradigm, let's say, uh, truly limitless because they have both the ta- power to tax and the power to print money. So there is absolutely, at, in the foreseeable future, you know, we have like 100% debt to GDP ratio or more. We have like $20 trillion in debt and less than that, I think, in GDP. I don't know. I haven't looked lately, but it's around that. I personally think we could probably, with extremely low interest rates, have double that. I, I really believe that we could, you know, before we went bankrupt, we could really break records on how much debt we we could sustain at the federal level. And that's how they can finance all this stuff. That's how they can, because in New York, I mean, you can't jaywalk anymore. You can't smoke in a restaurant. They'll drag you out by your hair and beat you with a baton. Wow. Like there's no, in New York, when I was growing up, it's not, maybe not that bad. I don't know. But when I was growing up in New York, they used to try to pass low smoking ordinances and we would laugh. We're like, yeah, right. Try to, you know, cut over my, <laughs> you can pry this cigarette out of my cold dead hands. You know? <laughs> like in the South, they're talking about the guns. In New York, we were like, yeah, right. And then I, I moved to California to go to school. When I came back, I was like, I went, I started smoking. And they're like, you know, you're not allowed to smoke. I was like, allowed? <laughs> you know, they're like, no, you really can't smoke. Like they'll close this place down and now. So now the bartenders enforce it. I was like, oh. <laughs> so yeah, so they cracked in. Giuliani tried. Yes, they Giuliani tried and did not succeed. And then I think, or maybe he did by making a set of legislation, he made a health code violation. But Bloomberg was the one who really turned New York, you know, into a police state. But I'm just saying, how do you do that? How do you... How do you overwhelm you the population? Into a, you can, into a police state? Is that what you said? Yeah, I think New York got, it got a lot cleaner. You know, it gets better. It's like, I think one of the reasons we have such unbelievably low crime is that we put a, like most of the people, like a tremendous amount of people, again, a record-breaking amount of people in jail for drug use, which they should not be in jail for that. But, you know, if 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 being a druggy is a self-selection mechanism for being a troublemaker or being, you know, an undesirable in society and you just put them all in jail, you're probably going to have less trouble. It's not right. I don't think they should do it. But I'm just saying, if you want to put 25% of the population in jail and, and you do that selectively instead of randomly, you are probably going to have, a, like, it's like Mao's China. Yeah. The pre the pre Mao Chinese who came over here think the post Mao Chinese are like a different animal entirely, and they probably are because Mao, one way or another, I believe was responsible for a hundred million deaths, reeducation, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that kind of cultural change, dramatic cultural change, has an impact. But I'm just saying, if you're going to have a police state, if you're really going to have a crackdown, you you can do it if you have unlimited funds and, and who ha- the police powers are supposed to be at the state and local level uh, just because that's how the 10th amendment lays it out. And I don't know if our founders thought about it or not, but that in itself puts a real limit on how much money you can spend simply because the economies uh, can't support, you know, that's just a deadweight loss to an economy. It's not productive. It's security. It's it's spending money on the locks of your grocery store, not on the inventory on the shelves. It's it's a total loss as far as productivity is concerned. So you really, you would weigh down an economy if you spent all the money that we spent. But we have this little scam going on at the top where they tax, they print, they keep the interest rates low. All of that stuff is in the control of the federal government. And they, and that, that really means they have for, for all practical purposes in the short run, if they're trying to put a complete totalitarian state in place, they can limitless resources for that. Sorry if that was too long winded, but it was just an insight I had recently. And I think it's relevant to what this guy's talking about. Yeah. Do you want me to continue playing the clip? (laughs) Yes. Let's, let's, uh, hopefully that'll just over time sink in. I like to get these things out because. They're important, you know, and I ne- I only say stuff like that when I never heard anybody else say it. Maybe lots of people say it, and I just didn't understand what they were saying. Yeah. But I just, I feel like that's something that we should, I like those little nuggets to carry around in my brain and look around at the world and see if it makes sense over time. And then you also know what to kind of be aware of. And when people ask you, well, what are you afraid of? Why don't you want federalization of the police? I would say now my number one reason is 
<clears throat> limitless resources. There you go. Okay. Thank you. Go. Uh, it's unfortunately leveraged by the technological revolution, which means that a smaller and smaller number of people can do more and more damage as we saw on 9-11. And that means we have to completely retool and reconfigure our strategy and our, our menu of options in dealing with this kind of threat. We can't afford to have uh, boxes and silos anymore. We have to have an open architecture for how we deal with this uh, new, very, very dangerous challenge. And do you think the way the uh, intelligence community is organized today is is better than it was? It's clearly, and have we gotten to that point where we're sharing? Peter, it's, clear, it's clearly better, and there is more sharing, uh, but it's not completely where it needs to be. And I'd say there are a couple of areas where that's true. One is um, we still tend to view uh, what goes on overseas and what goes on over here as two separate domains. And the fact of the matter is, particularly with the Internet, you can't draw that distinction. So we have to have a more seamless intelligence. That was interesting. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if he's going to go on on that same point of change, but there's just too many. I, I don't want to lose that thought. So yeah. the beginning says you have to have this open architecture. You can't have boxes and silos. That means everything is open to everybody. I consider that a direct that that you can, if you think of it that way, you can eliminate every single uh, amendment in the Bill of Rights. Basically, that if you say it's a different world, there are no, you know, that that can attack privacy, due process, all of that to say. There's no compartmentalization because that's what, you know, it's all, all of your own individuality is about that compartmentalization. And then on top of that, he put another big point out, which is the international, you, you no longer can respect national boundaries. There is no sovereignty. We don't, we can't respect sovereignty anymore. It's an international problem. We have to think of it internationally. That's straight out of report from Iron Mountain. Yeah. And I thought what he said about a smaller number of people can take over. So they had to do something about it. it. Was interesting to me. That's to me. That's really him saying that other people might be able to come exercise some power. So they have to make some adjustments to make sure that they can still maintain power over this new emerging environment that we live in. And I, I would, I would view it. That may be true. I think you may be right that they actually perceive threats actively like that. I think of it more as they're saying. It's like when they went from cells to lone wolves. If if you don't have to communicate and you don't have to have a history, so these lone wolves are lone wolves. They don't communicate with people and they have no history whatsoever, right? So, well, how are we supposed to stop these people? They have no no criminal background. Like that's what that's the latest false flag mo. And if they can say that kind of stuff. They can preemptively take your rights away. They can preemptively yeah. target you. No, no group is too small. No individual, even, you know, no, no individual can be an island. Like, no, you can't have the concept of sovereign citizen, which actually someone pointed out was a, an oxymoron. <laughs> if you're a citizen, you're not the sovereign, but, um, you can't be you know, master of your own domain, if you will, by uh, if you as an individual can be a real threat to the big picture. You know what I'm saying? Otherwise, you could just have border security. You know, you could have the Iron Dome of Israel. You could have, uh, you know, Smedley Butler's Amendment for Peace, where you have 750 miles in any direction, and you could actually shoot stuff out of the sky, Star Wars, all that kind of stuff. You can't, if any individual is uh is a is that much of a threat thank you right i thought it was interesting also that he mentioned the internet and you said this was like eight years ago this interview yeah his book came out uh eight i think it was eight years ago and they're talking about his book and this interview itself was uploaded around that time so yeah he mentioned that in correlation i guess or in connection to the intelligence agencies and how they're not where they're, they're better, but they're not where they need to be. And he was relating that to the internet, which is, you know, that's the changed environment. The internet has transformed the world. The intelligence agencies aren't where they need to be. To me, that tells me that's kind of foreshadowing the total information control thing where the intelligence agencies oh, yes. would just yes, take yes. over. Yes. Sorry. I totally flagged that. I was thinking 
total information awareness. And that actually was, I don't know, I'm sure Chertoff was around during that time, but there was a total information awareness program under Bush that was shut down by Congress. I think it was before his stint as Homeland Security, but it might not have been. He took over for Ashcroft or whatever that guy's name was. So um, That's really interesting to me uh, because he, he's involved yeah. in what we're going to talk about later, this Hamilton 68 thing, which we'll talk about later, but is also oh, related I meant to, to do some homework on that. Dang it, you're going to have to. But yeah, it's, it's related to the same type of stuff, to taking over control of the information on the internet. So I, I find this very interesting. I'm going to back the clip up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Sorry, yeah. All right, you ready? Yep. Strategy and our, our menu of options in dealing with this kind of threat. We can't afford to have uh, boxes and silos anymore. We have to have an open architecture for how we deal with this uh, new, very, very dangerous challenge. And do you think the way the uh, intelligence community is organized today is is better than it was it's clearly and have we gotten to that point where we're sharing peter's clear it's clearly better and there is more sharing uh but it's not completely where it needs to be and i'd say there are a couple of areas where that's true one is um we still tend to view uh what goes on overseas and what goes on over here as two separate domains and the fact of the matter is particularly with the internet you can't draw that distinction so we have to have a more seamless intelligence capability the second thing is our legal principles have not kept up with the new challenges. Uh, you know, one of the, the problems I think we faced right after 9-11 is rules had been written for dealing with foreign intelligence and how we, we surveil it. Back in the days of, you know, we were worried about the Soviet Union or, or other countries, and while we still have concerns about nation states, the issue of terrorism is now equal in, in importance. And we didn't have a legal model that helped us deal with that. So I, one of the things I think Congress hasn't done that and needs to do is to actually sit down and think through, uh, in a bipartisan way, what is the legal architecture we need to deal with this 21st century challenge? That's really interesting. He's okay. saying, let's, let's change the Constitution. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. It's not even the Constitution. He said legal principles. I have a book. I, as soon as I saw it, I knew I had to have it. It's called, I think it was called Rule of Law. And it's a, it's an old book, but it's a study that covers the, the emergence. I, I think of it as an organic emergence. Some people would call it an evolution, but I feel like human nature, the principles of society are immutable. Whether they were handed down by God or they are come up from the bottom, you know, from uh, our own, you know, just mother nature. I don't know, but, but there's a right, there's a, there's a moral structure for human society that is objectively true. I'm an objectivist and a lot of people are subjectivists and I think subjectivism is, is ruling the day in today's day and age, but I'm not, I believe that it is ours to acknowledge and discover. And I think that we, over the 10,000 years of human civilization, we have discovered those things. They are highly stabilizing. I think we've had the great, the monumental thinkers. I mean, I guess Socrates would be the, the pivot point. Um, Jesus, maybe St. Thomas and so many, you know, secular thinkers too. I'm not saying that, but these legal principles and say the bill of rights, the constitution that I've enshrined what I consider to be, <clears throat> I, I mean, I may reconsider this over time, but I have always been a fan of the enlightenment and, uh, and this idea of, and this is a uh, Aristotelian stuff, I guess, where you think of the individual as, you know, someone with free will and, reason and uh the ability to know the difference between right and wrong that's basically what i'm talking about the ability to know the difference between right and wrong and like uh english common law as opposed to statutory law where the government tells you what everything is which has its benefits but common law is where cases arise in in human society and a, a person who's really good at seeing the true right and wrong of it makes that ruling. And that is not an establishment of law. It's a discovery of law. That's how I think of it. And so, so I like the enlightenment. I think it's 
possible that it's exploited, that libertarianism and individualism is exploited to justify, uh, I don't know. I think like Coke taking over Cato, you know, you'll see Fox News and their libertarians, like they focus on um, fighting to the death for no minimum wage, but they completely ignore, you know, bombing Syria. So yeah. I feel like that you can pick and choose these individualist uh, tenets, principles that you will fight and die for. I think it has to be holistic. It has to be a body of, of freedom. Um, but I do believe in that. I, I think that the enlightenment was a step forward that I do think in this discovery of the true law. And I think that we're probably in a period of regression, but for to say that you want to rewrite uh, legal principles, Vattel, the Vattel's Law of Nations, which our founders used for the Constitution. It was about international, you know, sovereignty. And, you know, the Law of Nations is not really a law that's enforced by an international police force or international army, but it is a law nonetheless. It's law because that's, it is, it defines the relationship, the proper order of the relationships. He didn't invent it. He didn't make it up. He didn't think of a system. He's, he's, just laying out what is true. And that's what I think of as legal principles. I think of the constitution that way. I think of the amendments that way. And to say it really makes me crazy. And this comes out of the right a lot. I think, um, you know, you maybe get that from national review a lot where they say, and this makes me insane because the right is where Republicans are voters who say they believe in the constitution, say they're objectivists, but their, their thought leaders are saying things like, but George Washington didn't have to deal with Al Qaeda. You know, Thomas Jefferson didn't understand these threats, but that's, it's destabilizing. It's, it's violating the law. It's American exceptionalism. It's bombing other countries without right. That destabilizes the entire system, makes people not recognize the objectively true law because you don't obey it. It, it causes the problem. We do not need to rewrite legal principles because of the challenges we face today, it is ignoring legal principles that create these extraordinary, grotesque, you know, um, exaggerated problems. And I just, I think it's, nothing could be more dangerous in my mind from a political point of view than someone like him saying, we need to le- rewrite our, rethink our legal principles. That's what he said, our legal principles uh, our for him to our legal artists. that too but he said yeah. principles oh yeah yeah yes and that that should go like that the host was not horrified and said whoa you know yeah that to me is scary well he said principles and then he said architecture and then he said principles again the reason i, I that i noticed that or that stood out to me is because when you say principles maybe maybe you might be saying we change one or two principles, not saying that's okay. But when you say architecture, you're saying we're transforming the whole damn thing. Well, the fact is, right, it both goes hand in hand because if you don't change the architecture, it doesn't matter if you have a philosophical discussion in Congress. But it really, like this criminal justice thing, somebody called in to the WSB show and said, I think it's a foreigner originally, and he said, uh, don't, Maybe he just had a foreign name. I can't remember. I hate to. Um, I love foreign. Remember stuff like that wrong. I just no. He was he was a fan and a libertarian and stuff like that. But I don't want to put on him that he was coming from the outside when maybe he wasn't. <laughs> uh, but he said. But but what he was saying was about like that the criminal. Ju- he said he was all over the world. I can't remember if he grew up someplace else. He's all over the world, and and that we still have the best criminal justice system. And I absolutely. Uh, I acknowledge that, at least as far as I'm familiar with it, but I absolutely see it changing with things like uh, parallel construction, where they want you for crime, they illegally got some evidence, so they try to get the evidence um, legally through another channel, or maybe in a similar kind of thing, they they like... Um, Socks leaving a guy who was a whistleblower on the FBI got put in jail for kitty porn. Um, Nacho, who wouldn't let, he was the CEO of Quest Communications. He would not let uh, the Bush administration put in warrantless wiretaps. And he went to jail for insider trading. And he said, I was framed for this other reason. And the judge said, maybe, but you can't even make that argument. 
because it would be a violation of national security. The guy went to jail for four years for that. You see this stuff happening and, you know, you see stuff at like Gitmo, which I didn't really care too much about. It's not a lot of people. I don't really know what's going on. But I, you see that even though they're not Americans, people say Americans don't have rights. I, of course, say rights are God given. But you see that and it, it's clear from the beginning that that is set up to get you used to it. Like Snowden was there to get us used to no Fourth Amendment. Gitmo was there to get us used to no Fifth Amendment. So, but, uh, and like Internet censorship and all that kind of stuff is, is getting us used to no First Amendment. That's what these things are all uh, there for. So if they change the actual, what you're talking about, architecture, then particularly due process, trial kind of stuff, that is where you can just disappear and never be found again. And that, you're right, that's the super scary part. Yeah. And that guy, when you watch him deliver that message too, it makes a uh, shiver go up your spine. The guy is so Yeah, evil. I mean, yeah. He you seems can... like a guy, yeah. Seems like a guy who... He seems like a guy who's doing a job. He's not a guy. You and I are sitting here trying to puzzle stuff through. Maybe we do a good job. Maybe we don't do a good job. But he's not a guy puzzling stuff through. He's a guy who knows the message he has to deliver. He knows how to deliver it. He's almost bored with it. And and he's he knows that yeah. you have to go from A to B to C. You have to have some false flags. You have to scare the shit out of people. You have to think of the right. First and foremost, you have to figure out the right plan, which is why I look at this terrorism thing as not just a poor, ill-fitting substitute for war, but a fantastic, like in their minds, just a fantastic, pervasive terror that can truly justify minute by minute totalitarianism within your country, across borders, merger of, of military and cops, complete um, awareness of all of your interactions, everything. I mean, they can knock on your door and look through your closets at the drop of a hat, like they did to Manafort, right? Or whatever. Yeah. I, I didn't look into it, but you know, they have to get rid of this house. Uh, if this is, if this is how they think of the threat and, about what they want. If you read Brzezinski, if you read the report from Iron Mountain, if you read Irving Crystal, you know, if you read these guys, what they want, they're writing about this stuff 40 years ago. Right. They're talking about, we need, we need a, a new threat. We need it to be this. We need it to be that. You know, we, how about environmentalism? They stupidly use that example because they never thought it would work. They said, we're not going to mention any example we actually think is going to work. This one would have to re would require the total capitulation and complete subversion of the entire scientific community. And we don't think we could achieve that, but clearly we have, you know, now in retrospect, they were like, wow, this was easier than we thought. Pathetic. You deserve it. So I feel like that's where that this guy is just a man with a mission. Yeah, they have a, Big picture mis mission. All of these guys, these propagandists, these elitists, they are big picture strategists. And they keep the public thinking short term, thinking right in front of us. So we can't even see these big picture plans. Like like you said, they've been writing and talking about this stuff for decades. And the stuff he's talking about right now is totally related to this Hamilton 68 stuff that's going on, you know, six oh, or seven years later. Yes. And every, and oh, they, yes. we get, we get so they keep every, they keep the tension so tight, you know, and people's anxiety, everybody just has chronic anxiety across the country that we, we, it's almost incapable for people to have a, a break from all the hustle and bustle and stress and everything to step out of themselves and see these big picture things going on. So when you point out some of these strategies going on, even though they're written about, people just don't believe it because they believe what the problems and the urgent issues that are put right in front of them by these propagandists. It keeps people blind to it. Oh, I have to tell you. I have to tell you something funny about my mom. Um, but first, let me just say on the previous point, and then I want to move on to Hamilton 68 or whatever it's called that you've got guys like Chertoff, you've got guys like um, Brzezinski, you've got the guys who are thinking it through, who are out there. They have like second tier positions politically so that they can be seen going in and out of the Oval Office and stuff. 
But Brzezinski even wrote about the charismatic leader. You need the charismatic leader that will lead people into war. So it's very charismatic. Trump is very charismatic. Yes, he is. And, you know, neither of those guys really need to know that Chertoff has been, you know, uh, is the end of a long line of conspirators who uh, have a... You know, when you read what some of these think tanks put out about global governance or, um, you know, looking ahead to 2025, you know, the, the UN stuff. when you look at those things, which are really uniform across all the think tanks and university, all the super intellectual stuff, it'd scare the crap out of you if it was like translated into fourth grade English, like these guys talk to us because they have a vision of how, you know, you want a borderless society, you want a genderless society, you want a no poverty society, you want a few, you, some of them even said, Brzezinski, a few wealthy elites running the world, reduce the population, have everybody else live in these silo cities, take all the pub, all the uh, arable land away from the private hands. I mean, this is in UN documents. It's in all that stuff. So these guys, Chertoff knows that, um, called into that show, said, you're lying. You know it. If I know it, you know it. Hello. So Chertoff knows it. Brzezinski knows it. Do Trump and Obama, there's no, they should not know it. It would be stupid for them to know it. You have to find guys who don't like computers. Trump doesn't even have a computer, he said. So I think he said that. He doesn't do, I believe he said that. (laughs) Like he doesn't use, or maybe he can't use email. I don't know, but he says something like that. You should definitely look that up. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes. But but those are the kind of guys you want. FDR was in a wheelchair. You know, they don't want guys who have access to outside information who are super go-getters. Like Obama used to do his reports starting at 2 in the morning before they were due. This is not a guy who's like, I just have to find the truth, it. You know, like he's a guy like, hey, man, let's party. You know, I don't know if he's yeah. partying, but I'm just saying like these are not the face guy, the charisma guy, the guy who's delivering the message is not the guy. Chertoff is the guy who knows. Okay, so now I want to tell you the funny thing about my mom. So I said, uh, she asked me a question. So I'm with my mom. We had several deaths in our family, and it's been a super sad time for us. So I've been going to New York to see my mom a lot, and she wants you to watch TV with her. So I watch TV. She watches Fox News. She watches Jeopardy. And uh, she'll see she loves Trump, and uh, <laughs> she'll, she'll ask me, like, what do you think? What do you think? So you think that North Korean guy is crazy, right? I'm like, Mom. She's like, he said he tweets. He tweets. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. And I'm like, I don't think he tweets his own tweets. And she's like, what? 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 More fake? <laughs> you with the fake? I'm like, yes. So she thinks he doesn't. She just she just believes the whole thing. You know, the whole hook, line, and sinker. To the point where she's extremely religious and. Over the years, she was disgusted with him. Like, he, she stopped liking him when he left his first wife, Ivana. She did not like him anymore. She used to like him because he restored the ice rink <laughs> that she liked in the city. Yeah. But that, which was a huge PR stunt. Um, and then she didn't like him with, for the running around. That's not her thing. And she just, and, and she's like, he loves this country. He's a loyal guy. He's a family man. I'm like, what? You used to say. And she just doesn't, won't remember it. But here was the thing. So I said to her. She said to me once, I was absolutely shocked by this, that she doesn't believe in dinosaurs. Really? Yes. <laughs> if she can hear me, I'm in her house right now. I have a little portable mic in her house. I hope she has. Doesn't. Has she always me. held this belief? I have no idea. And she's not a young earth creationist. She doesn't not believe that. That She said, she says, uh, they're just too big. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And I said, but you know, so you think the big gigantic, you know, T Rex at the Natural History Museum is fake? She says it is fake. They tell you it's fake. Yeah. They say right there on the sign it's fake. And I'm like, I know, but they say they have the bones in the back. It's like, I don't know. It seems too big to me. So I said to her the other day, we're watching the Trump news or whatever, and I said, I'm just not for nothing, but like you're going down, you're going to the mat that Trump tweets his own tweets, but you don't believe in dinosaurs. <laughs> She's like, I, 
what are you giving me a hard time for? I, I just don't understand you. He loves this country. I'm, and I'm fine with him. I really don't care. You know, I just don't think it's real. I just think it's theatrical. Even if there is real stuff going on, I think this stuff that we're being exposed to on Fox News is a television show. Absolutely. And it is a television show, you know? And but if you read the walls can't. of power, it's, it just yes. illustrates Trump is a living embodiment of that. He's a living embodiment of P.T. Barnum, of all of these. And he's written books about how to do right. it. Yeah, he talks he's about it. He's written books about how to do this. And I'm just saying he's doing it. I, I'm not for sure. I don't really know what's going on behind the scenes for sure not. But I just think it's funny. And you've touched on this before, like just the way the emotional attachment to whatever, you know, whatever the belief signifies. I do not hope. I guess it's hope. It's called the halo effect. When somebody is presented <sighs> in a certain way and you identify with them. And you have that impression of them, that initial not, – not like the first time you meet them, but once that – once the PR team has shaped the impression of this candidate in the eyes of the, you know, the target audience, the people that they're identifying with, they perceive that candidate through a halo. So if they have a positive halo over Trump, that he's this certain type of persona, everything he does is confirmed in their mind to be another example of that. So that's why people can interpret the, the, interpret the same action in two completely opposite ways because they have different halos over that person in their mind. So everything he does, yeah. he processes it through that feeling that was established. Well, it all and and a lot of that goes plays into what we've talked about, like the 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 difference between the real TV show and the you know, reality political theater is is that the, the hero-villain roles flip. Like, I'm still fascinated by that. I really want to just yeah. identify. I hope somebody, like, comments, like, what is that called? Like, there has to be... It's straight out of Carol Quigley, you know? Just... It's just, you know, the, the nature of the two-party psyop that actually gets... It's really a fine line because when you go to a movie, everyone in the audience sees the hero as the hero and the villain as the villain. Everybody. Right. It's the same perspective, yeah. Except for maybe a complete psychotic, but... But yeah, they've just really drilled it. So my mother feels like there's a an all out battle because half the people vote one way and half the people vote the other. And I said to her, no, no, no. They arrange it that way. You know, they know where to draw the line to get half the people to vote one way and half the people to vote the other. Yeah, they do. They do. You know what I mean? They would just they would just change they they would just move the line. If they had to move the line to the right to get it to be half and half, they would. They're trying to move it to the left to be half and half and lurch both left and right to the left. But it's not like there are two completely idealistic candidates who just get out on the stump and say what they think. And by coincidence, 60 million people vote for one and 60 million people vote for the other. Cambridge yeah, Analytica tells those archetypes. Yeah, and Cambridge Analytica, Analytica tells Trump, if you say this, you will get more people than you alienate. You know, you will you will gravitate towards the center where you can get half of those votes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. The perspectives, the perspectives of each group is from the audience perspective, their guy is the hero. They identify. So the story that they're processing is they are the center, the hero of the story, and the opposition is the enemy, and it's just flipped the other way around. So on the I left – It just fascinates the, me that the, – The resistance, that people, yeah. Yeah. The and that's where the psychographics comes in. Oh, absolutely. Like we used to play an improv game that was based spe specifically on that. We would do the scene one time through and then we would ask the audience, okay, who, who do you want? We're going to do the scene again from which character's perspective do you want to see the scene this time? So then we would play the scene again and we would show the completely different perspective of like how the son processed the scene, how the dad, how the mom, how the dog processed the scene, how the chair processed the scene. <laughs> and it's just completely like opposite and, and different from the one before it. And it, it was always interesting because it's unexpected. It twists the narrative that was uh, originally established. And all they've done is with the politics, they just fracture that narrative and each side thinks it's their story. They think they're the hero of the story. It's like the, the far side. It's just, it's just two frames, the far side where the first one is what you, what you say to your dog 
Ginger, I can't believe you ate the daisies. Ginger, come in here right now. Ginger, and then it says what your dog hears. Blah, 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 Ginger. <laughs> blah, blah, yeah, blah, blah, Ginger. Exactly. Ginger. And then I, my dog also hears food. Yeah, yeah, Blah, yeah. blah, blah, Samson. Blah, blah, food. Blah, blah. And then <laughs> it perks right up. But uh, like it, yeah, that's exactly too. what that is. It's he, he said, she said. Oh, know, it's, 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 I'm sorry I was late. Did you say that you don't love me anymore? You know, it's, <laughs> you, you... Oh, I do that to my husband. It's quite hilarious. We'll have <laughs> fights and he'll start laughing. But uh, I'll say, <laughs> my father started it when I was growing up. Like he would say something, you would say something, and he would say, up my what? <laughs> You'd be like, but I didn't. Because whatever it is that you were saying after he corrected you was up yours, dad. You know, yeah, <laughs> they yeah. just always say up that's my funny. what? <laughs> so it's pretty funny. But, uh, but yeah, that's the, that's the perspective thing. And it just, it, it's, I, that's why I really want to read that preparata book on the ideology of tyranny, because he talks about how in the 1980s, there is, a, it, they introduce intentionally into American politics divisiveness. Because if you, because there's a bigger point to like the, the, I, the movie versus politics thing in the movie, everybody's on the same side because we all know right and wrong and we're all in the same culture. I'm guessing if you played that same movie in Iraq or China, they don't get it. Like if you watch those foreign movies, sometimes they're weird. Even if you watch do the right thing by Spike Lee, I was like, how is that the right thing? The pizza guy didn't do anything to you. You know, like yeah. I just like, why killed the cop killed the guy, you know, why hurt the pizza guy? I didn't get it. You know? And I, and I'm not sure I, I, I really do. I think it was actually trying to undermine objective right and wrong and making a collective right and wrong. But so that the movie thing was so, so when they, so politics is deliberately avoiding those things that unite us, which is what, like, if you look back in the fifties and stuff, it didn't even occur to the paralete until people like Harold Laswell came along that, that you could change the underlying assumptions. Yes. Yeah. And the underlying assumption was we all have these values. And in order to get people to vote for you, you must appeal to their values and then they somebody came up with the idea, um, I think it was that, whatever, that you could actually get them to hate each other and prey on that. It was a part of the pot, but now it's all there is to it. There's no content even. You, know, you don't even know what the policy differences are. Trump's policies and Hillary's policies, at the end of the day, the outcome four years from now, who the hell knows? Has nothing to do with policy. Nothing. I was thinking about this the, the other day. The R or the D or the blue or the red or who won. You know what I mean? None of it. Yeah, go. People are so fired up about the resistance or whatever their side is or whatever their movement is, this national conversation and this national divisiveness and fighting that's going on. They're so fired up about it. But if they really cared about these social issues that they're being driven to to fight about that they they think you know i saw a headline trump's all-out war on the lgbtqstr whatever the <laughs> letters are community and i'm like all-out war really but really <laughs> he's got that, a tommy gun on guess, the, yeah, on the yeah, front steps of the white house and he's just invited them all there for a protest and then just mowed yeah. them all down had the right. swat teams behind them just, re- <laughs> just ridiculous. Yes. So like just complete slaughter straight out of hand. They ripped his shirt off Putin style. Yeah. I guarantee you ask these people, well, what's your local policy? Like what are the local laws related to these issues that you care about? They would have no idea. And if they really cared about these issues, they would find out what the local laws about these yeah, issues what, are. What are the laws that people are worried about? Yeah, they, they would they would go to their local, you know, hearings. They would get involved at the local level and they would help, you know, implement local policy that helped accomplish these things that they think they're fighting for. But really they have no well, it's, idea. It's flavor. They just don't like they don't like that he doesn't like them or something. But they're they the the hyper political identity stuff is quite unlikable. But the guy who called into my show the WSB show that you completely identified because he once attacked you personally. Oh, uh, yeah. Jeff. And yeah. he called and he said that the problem with Trump was that he was dividing this country. And I've heard that many times, you know, maybe, and, and they call their thing indivisible, right? They call their thing indivisible. That's yeah. interesting. <laughs> but that he's dividing this country, but, but what does that mean? You know what I mean? Is that, is it, 
it's his personality is so strong. It can create a, a polarity among 320 million people. I mean, is that what they're saying? Or because is he legislating? He's not a legislator. I, I don't think Jeff. So was what is saying it that he's doing? He, he is. He has he a said, polarizing personality. Jeff said he's got to go because he's dividing this country. He, Jeff talked for one minute, and one of his sentences was that. Yeah, no, I mean he said that, but and I, I said, think, yeah, okay. I don't think I he said he's not dividing this country. You yeah, are. I don't. Yeah, I don't think Jeff and like I don't think he meant that Trump is is intentionally polarizing. I think he meant that he's dividing this country by his all-out war on the LGBTQ community, like stuff like that. I think he genuinely yes, believes. But what does that mean? What does dividing this country mean? What does Jeff mean by the phrase dividing this country? What does he mean? I, I don't know. That, I want you I, to tell I, I think that he means that there is a large portion of the country, slightly less than there is people who side with him, that are white nationalist racists that hate gay people. I think anybody who aligns with Trump, who supports Trump, or who doesn't openly oppose him, I think that – I think those people are compartmentalized or categorized in his mind as evil people who want to destroy his community and take America back 100 years. That's how they've, they made it – they make it a simple simple categorization so that people can fight with each other and have easy, easy things to fight about. If any complexity or gray area comes into it at all, then people start thinking and asking questions, and they can't – they can't be at each other's throats, so they keep it su- super well, simple like that. It goes back to, you know, I'm reminded of the Stevie Wonder thing where he said, you know, let's hear yeah. three cheers for unity. I mean, I don't, I don't even understand what that means. Like, what happens to diversity? Is diversity and division different? You know what I mean? It's like a, it's self-contradictory, and it will make a schizophrenic society if that's possible. But this idea of dividing and its opponent, I mean, that is clearly a dialectic, die meaning to, I'll have to look up lectic. <laughs> someone knows <laughs> it. Someone's listening saying it means blah, blah, blah. So um, it's clearly a dialectic of dividing and unity, division and unity. That is the, di- so if you have a synthesis of that, I mean, they're true opposites, but I mean, you have to assume that the synthesis is a collectivist, you know, it's not going to be individualist. It's, it's just, there's something to it. That's, uh, it doesn't mean anything on its face, but it really must mean something for the long-term plan. IMO. Oh, I think so too. I think it all all means something for the long term plan. They have a bigger picture. I know, but we're trying to figure out what it means. I'm yeah, not I good know. at that. I'm good at the flags. I'm good at the big, big, big picture, and I'm good at the teeny tiny picture. But it's it's all the junk that happens in the middle that I'm just like I don't know what <laughs> you know. I just don't know. Very interesting. Okay, well, we'll have to continue this conversation uh, right. another time. We have a show this weekend, and we'll be back with more propaganda report next week. This is Monica Perez. Goodbye, Brad Binkley. See you later.